The Bible reading tonight is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 12. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Thanks for that reading, Jody. Uh, if you're visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. It's great to have you with us. Uh, we're moving through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've reached Chapter 7, as Dave was saying. Um, we're closing in on the final parts over the next couple of weeks as we run up to Easter. Um, before I pray and uh, we look at this section together, just a further plug of what was already shared in the announcements in terms of the men's event. Um, we'd really love you to go on site online and um, fill in that you're coming. We have a try booking link that went out on Facebook this week. It was also in the e-news. It will just help us with our catering to know how many are coming. But let me really encourage you to invite a non-Christian mater along. This will probably be the most evangelistic event of the year. Great opportunity with a local butcher from Greenville coming to present uh, as well. So this will be a great event. So get onto that this week. Let me encourage you. Well, let me pray, and then we'll have a look at this together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word given to us. Uh, we acknowledge that as we look at uh, topics such as uh, being judged and judging others, that this can yeah, raise challenges for us. Uh, your word penetrates even in the thoughts of our hearts, and so we ask that you might uh, help us this night uh, to hear your voice afresh that we might respond, um, convicted by your spirit, to live in a way that uh, puts into practice what we hear from the Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I watched the classic Australian film, The Dish, and of course, it's the story of the radio telescope at Parks and how it was central uh, to the coverage of the moon landing in July 1969. And of course, everything was being run by the Americans from Houston, and so they wanted to send out a representative in the movie, Al Burnett, um, who comes to help the small Aussie team at Parks to keep things on track, keep in touch with Houston. But of course, they were a bit intimidated uh, by this uh, American guy, they thought he was the big shot Yank who was telling them what to do and doubting their ability. Here he came in these fancy expensive suits and was sort of condescending towards them in their mind. Well, uh, there was an error at one point in some of NASA's calculations. Uh, 
And American Owl said, I stand corrected. But uh, the Australian Mitch, who was having a problem with him, didn't think he showed enough humility at that moment. And he said, no, mate, you're wrong. Owl replied, do we have a problem? Yeah, you treat us like a pack of galahs. <laughs> and Owl would eventually win Mitch over. It went on and on. But eventually, the day before uh, the moonwalk, um, Owl uh, says to Mitch, you know, not everyone at NASA is a hotshot college genius. The guy I admire the most is from a one-horse town in Ohio. Now, Mitch wasn't convinced again. He's cynically thinking, oh, this will be some nobody. And so he says, well, what did this guy do? Well, actually, he's going to walk on the moon tomorrow, speaking of Armstrong. Well, sometimes things are just cultural misunderstandings. We judge a person, it's addressed, and, and things work out smoothly, like that movie in the end. But often, judging and being judged is a lot more complex than that, as we'll see in this passage tonight. And the second section of the passage, we also come to the issue of prayer. And there's much that will challenge us about that, too, in the way we respond to God rightly. And so the big question that I want us to consider tonight is this. What does relational integrity with others and with God look like? I think this is what ties these two halves together. What does relational integrity with others and with God look like? Two answers to that question tonight. The first answer is this. It involves humbly confronting sin in others. It involves humbly confronting sin in others. Notice again what is recorded from verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. A lot of commentators say that if there's a verse in the Bible that's known outside of the church more than John 3.16, it would be Matthew 7, verse 1. It's often remembered by people as a kind of a defiant gesture by people that don't know the Bible so well, but think at least this verse means it authorizes whatever they do and no one else can question them. You can't judge me. Whatever I think or do, you've just got to let it be. In an age when pluralism is dominant, when truth is relative, that is in a world that says there are many truths and all of them are valid and truth is just what works for me, then this sentence is often taken to justify this response of our age, to justify our own beliefs and actions. But I think as Christians, as we read this first sentence in Matthew 7, we think, well, it can't mean that. But if not, what does it mean? Well, back at the end of chapter 6, as we saw last week in verse 33, we're called to pursue righteousness. But, of course, people who pursue righteousness can potentially be prone to self-righteousness if we're not careful, if we're not humble. Uh, we can be prone to an arrogance and ugly hypocrisy, which Jesus has already condemned, you might remember, in the first part of chapter 6 in this Sermon on the Mount. And so this danger is picked up again here, albeit in a different context, 
And Jesus really is giving us a command. It's an imperative there in verse 1, do not judge. But I think the confusion that we have as we read this is that this term translated judge can have a range of meaning in the New Testament. It can mean to discern or to judge judicially, as in the court of law, or it can mean to have a judgmental spirit, to be judgmental or to condemn another. And as a result, it's the context that determines how we're to understand the word. And the context really in these uh, couple of verses at the start of Matthew 7 argue for the meaning being do not be judgmental or condemning. The same verb is found elsewhere in Romans 14 verse 10 with an identical meaning there. You then, why do you judge your brother or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. In other words, Jesus is not saying it's about tolerating sin and never showing any discernment. Anyone can do what they want and you shouldn't question them. Rather, he's saying don't adopt a critical spirit, an arrogant attitude that always seeks to find fault in others while acting as if you're not a sinner as well, as if you're somehow faultless. What's fundamentally at stake here for Jesus is our attitude, how we think about this. And such judgmental attitudes can obviously come out in direct criticism of another person or it can come out in gossip, right, slowly in the background. And what might be said in gossip may be largely true in terms of the bare facts of what another person has done, but it's done in a way that shows there's no desire to build up, there's no real concern for restoration of that person. It's just to puff the person up who's speaking and to attack the character of the other one. But notice in the second half of verse 1, Jesus says, Do not judge, or rather do not be judgmental, or you too will be judged. Now this could perhaps be taken to mean, um, if you're judgmental, then others will be judgmental towards you. But given the context of verses 1 to 3, the sentence actually means, Do not be judgmental, or you will be condemned by God. And that adds a sting, right, to this command. It introduces a reason for abolishing wrong attitudes when we come to looking at those around us. Notice that verse 2 states, For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's saying that the measure that we, the measuring stick we line up against other people, God will be able to use against us as he holds us to account. And so we're being called to abolish a sort of fault-finding attitude where we're just seeking to belittle others unless we ourselves end up standing utterly condemned before God because we think we somehow don't need forgiveness, that somehow we don't need God's mercy. I think the thought actually resonates with what we saw in the first week in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 verse 7, which we've just had recited again tonight. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We want to be careful that we're not, by our actions, excluding ourselves from God's mercy by this sustained arrogance, an attitude which reflects a lack of forgiveness towards others because we have not understood God's forgiveness that's on offer for us. Christians should be just so sure, so aware, so conscious of their own shortcomings, their own rebellion, that they're proud, uh, profoundly grateful for God's goodness to them, his forgiveness. And the result will be that we will 
show mercy and compassion and empathy towards others, even while we strive for godliness and call others to strive for godliness too. This balanced perspective should stop us from being judgmental, condemning on the one hand, but then on the other, being completely indifferent to sin, being apathetic towards the other person altogether. Back at a previous church, uh, we had a situation where there was a young couple that was part of our young adults group, and they were coming along to church regularly, part of a lot of things. And then the husband had an affair. His wife found out about it. Everyone was then aware in the young adults group. He withdrew from church. She was still coming. But he wanted to continue in the sporting team that a number of us were in. And it created this awkward situation because when it got to the sporting team, he wanted to be treated as if nothing happened, didn't want anyone to raise it. And, of course, a lot of people felt convicted, not only on behalf of his wife, but just that this was wrong and to say something to him. But there were others in the team that were like, well, maybe we shouldn't. You know, are we being judgmental even to raise it? Maybe we should just leave it to God. Maybe you've found yourself in those kind of scenarios where it can be tricky to navigate how we should respond. I think the danger in that situation was that in the end we might be indifferent to sin if no one said something. But it is right to stop and pause because we can have a condemning attitude if we're not careful. In verses 3 to 5, Jesus gives us an example, an extreme example. He's using hyperbole with this metaphor Tell us how it can be looking really bad if we get this wrong. Verse 3, we've got a Christian who has found some fault in another, a speck of sawdust, when they have obvious sins in their own life as big as a plank. Notice in verse 3 that there is an arrogance about the person pointing out the speck because Jesus says they pay no attention to the plank in their own eye. As one writer has said, faults are like the headlights of a car. Those of other cars seem far more glaring than our own. And Jesus draws from this situation an obvious principle, doesn't he, in verses 4 and 5, that you need to have your own life in some order, at least to be addressing sin in your own life, before you go pulling up someone else. Now, he's not saying that you have to be perfect before you can say anything to the next person. In that case, none of us would ever rebuke anyone, right? Because we're all sinners. We all fail God every day. But no, we can graciously deal with sin in others' lives if we're willing to admit our own faults, if we're seriously addressing our own shortcomings. But if we're not serious about our sin, if we show no evidence of that, if we speak with no empathy regarding those things, then Jesus says, well, we just become a hypocrite. It's like the story of a lady at an airport. Uh, she was, knew she was going to be waiting some time for her flight in the terminal, so she bought herself a book to read and she bought a packet of cookies to eat. And she sat down and she was getting engrossed in a book, so she didn't get into her cookies and she's reading away. And then this guy was sitting a seat away and suddenly opens the packet of cookies and the seat in between them and takes a cookie and eats it. It's like, what is going on? The audacity of this guy. And she, going to let him eat them all. She wasn't sure what to do. So she took a cookie and then it went back and forth. He took another one. Well, I'm not going to let him eat them all. And she took another one again. And on and on this went until they got down to the last one and the man broke it in half, left it and walked off. 
And then the plane was called and she's rushing off and getting into a plane thinking, what is going on with the world today? How could somebody act like this? Can you believe the nerve of this guy? And then she sat down in her seat and looked into her handbag and realised that there was her unopened packet of cookies. And she thought, maybe really I shouldn't be quite so judgmental of other people. I wonder what that guy was thinking of me. It can be so easy to judge, can't it? It's terribly easy to imitate such hypocritical con conduct. We can sometimes accomplish this by focusing on faults that we know others have around us that we don't struggle with. We point those out while remaining disturbingly oblivious to other things that we struggle with that we never raise. We need to be careful. We need to be gracious. But it doesn't mean we should be silent. I think we need to keep the words of 1 Peter 4 in mind, where the Apostle Peter says, The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Notice that even in the hypocritical example um, that Jesus was offering in verse 5, there was still a role for seriously dealing with sin in each other's lives. The speck of sawdust in the patient's eye does need to be removed. It just can't be removed by a surgeon that has a plank. And so if a Christian's attitude is right, provision is made to deal graciously with the struggles we'll face. Maybe you found people judging you, or maybe you found yourself doing that to others. And there's things to repent of, things to work through in that. I'd encourage you to chat with somebody about that if that's the case. We have to see that our goal is to see every brother and sister in Christ in heaven. We want to see those who are outside of God's family brought into it, that they too one day may be before Jesus. And so I think the best verse in the New Testament for mine as we think about this topic is Galatians 6 verse 1 where the Apostle Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Which does beg the question of verse 6. Did you notice how Jesus has been arguing really tightly from verses 1 to 5, and then verse 6 suddenly pops in and can seem a bit out of place? I think the point of verse 6 is that we're not to be undiscriminating in seeking to speak the truth and restore others. There are limits to speaking. Verse 6 states, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now, the dogs being referred to are not uh, cuddly lap dogs that you can scratch their tummy. This is kind of um, wild dogs from Palestine in the first century, which would roam around in packs because nobody owned them, looking for any food that was available on the streets. And, well, the Palestinian pig was an abomination to the Jew. It was usually only half domesticated and those things could really turn on you and do some damage to you. And so it's quite a graphic picture that Jesus is describing. But he hasn't become a vet. He's not giving you a lesson on animal husbandry. These are metaphors for people. And so Jesus is talking about these pearls which represent the riches of spiritual truth, God's priceless word. 
And Jesus is saying there will come a time where we're not to continue sharing God's word, where people are persistently antagonistic, where they reject and they become abusive, and we're not called to continue to hold out God's word at that point. We are to walk away. And we see that example a number of times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, remember he goes into towns and eventually gets attacked and abused, sometimes dragged outside and stoned, and then he'll go to those who are willing to listen, who want to hear God's word spoken to them, the correction that it offers. Which brings us to a second answer. Second answer to this question of what does relational integrity look like, this time focusing on our relationship vertically with the Lord. Well, secondly, it looks like persistently expressing our trust in God through prayer. Persistently expressing our trust in God through prayer. So notice again what is stated in verses 7 to 11 as Jesus continues his argument. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Well, in verses 7 and 8 here, uh, Jesus is beginning by encouraging believers to ask and seek and knock. And Jesus is stating this in a way in the Greek which is emphatic and it has a continuous sense. He's saying, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Persistence is what Jesus is talking about here. That's the big theme. Persistence is required and he's talking about persistence in prayer. Jesus is calling for us to have a burning pursuit of our Heavenly Father in prayer that we would always be coming before him. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus has been outlining through the Sermon on the Mount is challenging, as we've seen. He's calling us to a life that requires a poverty of spirit, purity of heart, truthfulness, compassion, a non-retaliatory spirit, a life of integrity, and on and on, all these characteristics. If we don't need prayer for these things, then what will we need? We lack these in their fullness. And the Sermon on the Mount brings to light our spiritual bankruptcy. We have much to ask for. We want to keep asking God to multiply these virtues in our lives. We don't want to stop praying and just go on to something else to keep changing channels. Isn't it the case that we so often pray, I think we talked about this a few weeks ago, where we might have our shopping list. And then we pray that, and then if it doesn't happen the next day, we go on to something else, or we think that God's not listening, and so we give up praying altogether. Keep changing channel. We try and solve the problem in our own way. There's a, a tragic story a few years ago of a pilot who was flying a light plane in the United States. He was flying to Georgia. He had his wife on board. Partway through the flight, he became unconscious. Uh, his wife was not a pilot, but she kept the plane aboard, took over the uh, kept it aloft for two hours, kept the controls going. And you can imagine the desperation. She was trying to use the radio and contact uh, authorities, and she's saying, help, help, will someone help me? My pilot is unconscious. 
and the authorities picked up her distress signal and they were trying to get a message to her, but she kept changing the channel constantly for the whole two hours. They could never get full instructions to her. She ended up crash landing the plane as best she could and survived, thankfully, with some minor injuries and got help. But it's an example of how Christians often approach their prayer life and cry out to God for help and then switch channels before the message comes through. They turn to other sources for help. They try and solve it themselves. They look for human guidance. But they don't trust in the one fully who is sovereign, who can fix the problem, who can help them, who only too willingly wants to hear their prayer and respond. But sometimes God's response is in his perfect timing, which doesn't equal ours. And so we're called to wait. And while we're waiting, Jesus is saying, keep asking, keep praying, persistent prayer, persistent prayer that is sincere, that is humble. Well, that is already a step of faith. It shows integrity in our relationship with God. How are we treating God if we only speak to him to get what we want in our shopping list and when it's not working, we switch off? That's not actually prayer at all. Prayer is an expression of our relationship with our Heavenly Father, expression of our dependence moment by moment, day by day. I want to pray, I want to be in God's presence and speak regardless of whether he's going to answer or do some particular thing that I'm facing tomorrow or this week. He may, in his goodness and faithfulness, answer straight away. Wonderful when that happens. We better remember to praise God when that does happen. But so often we're called to wait. We need to keep praying, though. It's a wholehearted pursuit of our God and his righteousness that we're striving for, and it requires persistent prayer. The famous London preacher of the 19th century, uh, Charles Spurgeon, put our need for persistent prayer this way. Delayed answers are not only trials of faith, but they give us an opportunity of honouring God by steadfast confidence in him under apparent repulses. It's only apparent. It's just that his timing is different. And having established the necessity of persistence in prayer, Jesus wants to reassure us because we think, well, why? Can I keep sustained prayer when I'm not seeing the answers? Jesus reassures us, doesn't he, in verses 9 to 11, that God is good, that he is faithful, that he desires to respond, that he knows how to give good gifts. And so he gives these extreme examples. It's more hyperbole again. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Nobody does this. Who will, if he asks for a fish, give him a, a snake? No one. And so his punchline in verse 11 is, if that is true, if, if even though you are evil in comparison to the perfect righteousness of God and you know how to give good gifts, how will your heavenly Father, who loves you so much as his child, not give you all that you need? But sadly, at times, Christians can doubt God's goodness because we don't see the answer. We think somehow he has some malicious joy almost in making us wait, making us squirm. But to think in that way is to malign his character, is to treat God as if he is a flawed human like we are. That's something we might do. That's not our Heavenly Father. We need to be reminded of God's character often. 
You need to be aware of his wonderful goodness, his desire to bless his children and not stop praying. Coming back to Spurgeon's thoughts on prayer, he also asserted this. True prayer is neither a mere mental exercise nor a vocal performance. It's far deeper than that. It's a spiritual transaction with the creator of heaven and earth. And if that's true, and I'm sure if you're a Christian here tonight, you believe that, well, the result should be that we continue to express our dependence on God in prayer daily, moment by moment, expectant of his abundant provision. Not because he has to, because we are sure of his character, of his faithfulness, of his goodness. So often we belie wrong thinking about God through our prayer life. Another writer put it this way in a short poem. Lord, he wrote, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, unsure if you would even give me a small drop of refreshment. If only I'd known you better, I would have come running with a bucket. Jesus wants us to see clearly how it is we should respond to our Heavenly Father, how we should respond to each other. And he caps things off with the golden rule in verse 12 as we get to the end of our passage. So-called because of its statement, do to others what you would have them do to you. And it's an inclusio. It caps the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. Main body started in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, where Jesus talked about how he didn't come to remove the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And he spoke about the law and the prophets. Here he brings back that term again as he brings this final focus together of how we should think about treating others as he concludes the main body of the sermon. And what we're going to see in the next two Sundays from verse 13 is really just in a final appeal. He's going to say, which kingdom do you want to be part of? Are you going to be part of God's kingdom or are you going to pursue your own? But here as he wraps up this section, he's been dealing with some misconceptions. He wants us to see how this other-centered approach should guide our behavior. Now, as we think about this, I think, again, we can still think about this golden rule in a self-centered way. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't say, do to others what you would like them to do to you in order that they will do that? You know, just treat them well and then you'll get what you want out of others. No, 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 no. It's not about that. It's about the opposite of that, being other-centered, focused on their needs, not concerned about your own needs. Such behavior actually confirms the requirements, the character that Jesus has been unpacking for three chapters in this sermon. This is how it looks to live in a way as a member of God's kingdom, in a way that puts others before yourselves. But I think even as we reflect on that and we see him drawing this main section to a close, we can be surprised that he's not finishing with the first commandment. What we have in the golden rule is really a reworking of the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But what about the first one, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Why so focused on others? Well, I think he's just been circling around both of those commands in what he's been saying in this section. Isn't all that we've just seen about prayer 
about having a right relationship with our God, of loving him and expressing that in our daily walk with him. And if we get that right, then we'll actually be able to respond to others as we saw in the first section with the right attitude. Somebody who wants to build up and draw them along to see them follow the Lord Jesus as we seek to. And so these two great commands, they're a guide to our pursuit as we continue to walk as followers of Jesus. It's not that we earn our way through doing these things, try harder to be a good neighbor, to love others as you would have them love you. But out of Christ's grace that we've received by faith alone, we now live in a way that pleases him. And that will be demonstrated in our relationships with other people. Well, if you have been reflecting on how you've been relating to others as we've worked through the Sermon on the Mount, let me encourage you uh, to keep reflecting tonight and to speak to people. If it has been that you have judged them or you felt judged, it's good to work these things through in community, to speak in a way that shows love and compassion, but with, which deals with hurt openly, truthfully, thoughtfully. Let's pray.